So, over the past three weeks, we've been tracing the story of God's people through parts of the Old Testament, and we've been reflecting on how God established them as a nation of Israel in the land that he promised to give Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. And in the first week of our series, we heard how under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' successor, God's people actually entered that promised land where God's purpose, as it had always been, was to plant them like a fruitful vineyard so that they would enjoy blessings of stability and prosperity for themselves, but they would also be a blessing to others, to the nations that surrounded them. And then in the second week, we explored how the people came to a decision that they would rather like a king of their own so that they would be like the surrounding nations instead of learning to recognize that God himself was really the only king they actually needed. And we saw how their lived experience of actually having a king varied considerably from the rather flawed autocratic kingship of Saul to a more positive model set by King David, sometimes referred to as the ideal or archetypal king, a man after God's own heart. And with God's help, despite his own human feet of clay, King David did indeed rule over a successful and a united kingdom, and he passed this unified nation on to his son, Solomon. And Solomon fulfilled his father's ambition to build a great temple in the capital city of Jerusalem, which would be a physical place that represented God's presence in the midst of his people. But sadly, for all his wealth and his wisdom, King Solomon was unable to maintain his own and his people's faithfulness to the God who had shown such great faithfulness to them. So last week, in the third of our series, we learned about the cost of disobedience to God's laws and the threat of judgment as a consequence on the nation. And we learned that what happened was that after Solomon's death, the unified nation divides into a a northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, And in this divided, weakened state, it was not long before the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and its inhabitants were scattered and carried off into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah fared a little better. It lasted another 150 years or so, but it too was subject to repeated attack from hostile neighbors. And after multiple invasions, It was King Nebuchadnezzar, as we heard in our reading today, and his Babylonian army who eventually invaded Jerusalem in 587, and they destroyed Solomon's magnificent temple, that place that housed the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, together with much of the rest of the city, including David's palace, the homes of Jerusalem inhabitants and the city walls. And most of Jerusalem's people are carried off into captivity and exile in Babylon. 
Just a few are left behind to work the vineyards and the fields. And of course, we heard that many of the leaders and influential people were cruelly executed. So this once stable kingdom, this united kingdom led by a strong king ruling faithfully under God, has now crumbled. There's been total collapse. And that's what we see in the middle of the illustration behind me, which Liz prepared for us. There has been mass deportation of most of God's people to a foreign land and an uncertain future. And the story of this rise and fall is a sobering one that's repeated down the ages. But in this particular story, the writer of the Book of Kings sees a clear moral. God is presented as the Lord of human history, actively involved in the affairs of humankind. When the nation and its leaders look to God and obey his laws, then peace and prosperity follow on. But when the nation ignores God and his commandments, God is gracious enough to send messengers, prophets like Elijah and Elisha, to challenge the leaders and the people to return to godly ways. But when God is ignored and God's messengers are ignored, then political, economic and military disaster overtake Israel and Judah as a direct consequence. And the whole edifice comes crumbling down. And that's what we see in the centre of our series illustration. We see God's people no longer rejoicing in the prosperity of their city, no longer enjoying and being at home in the land of milk and honey, which they had experienced for several centuries. Now they're in a sort of an in-between place, in a foreign land beside the waters of Babylon. And the river running through the centre of the illustration represents the rivers Euphrates and Tigris, which are found in Babylon, in modern-day Iraq. We actually have recorded for us in the Bible what it felt like to be one of those people by rivers of Babylon. This is what was said by one of the writers of the Old Testament. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Those words come from Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a song of mourning or lament for what has been lost. And it's one of several lamentation psalms in the Jewish hymn book, which we know as the Psalms. It reflects a period of several decades in the lives of God's people following the fall of Jerusalem 
and their captivity in Babylon, when they sensed themselves to have somehow fallen outside of God's purposes, his good purposes and plans for them and for their history as a chosen people. And we can hear in the lament a deep, deep sadness, sense of loss, regret, and perhaps guilt at their failure to live out the mission that God had entrusted to them. And if you look closely at the little people figures, you can see that sense of desperation, (coughs) loss, bereavement, grief, guilt, as they fall to their knees, cover their eyes, and weep for what is no longer. And I wonder, as we think about this theme today, I wonder if we ever find ourselves in a similar place of exile in a foreign land, a place where we sense we don't really belong. It's a challenging or uncomfortable place for us, a place where we feel far from home. It's not uncommon for there to be times in our lives when we feel that things have simply not turned out as we'd hoped or wished or even prayed. We sense we're simply not in that place that we're supposed to be in. And it certainly doesn't feel like a place where we will thrive and live a meaningful or fulfilling life. Sometimes we sense that we personally are responsible for being in that place. We know that we have actively contributed to that situation, perhaps through poor life choices or our failure to be alert to God's leading. Did we somehow go astray because we were distracted by the life of the world rather than by the life of God? Did we miss a God-given opportunity along the way? Or perhaps we know full well that we deliberately and selfishly chose to take a path for ourselves that we know was not aligned with God's good purposes. Sometimes we know we have contributed to this place of exile. But sometimes we find ourselves in exile not because of something we ourselves have done or not done, but as a result of the poor choices and decisions of others, whether it's people who are close to us in our families or local communities, or whether it's people who are more distant from us, but who nevertheless influence our well-being and our livelihood through their decision-making. Perhaps they're leaders at the local, national or international level and we suffer the consequences of their poor decisions and find ourselves in hard places as a result. And I feel sure that must have been the experience of some of those who were taken into exile from Jerusalem. The whole community suffers as a result of the decisions of individuals or powerful groups within that nation or community. And then sometimes in life, there's no one that we can point to as being responsible for us being in the situation we're in. 
In the face of life's changing seasons, we simply struggle to adapt and come to terms with feelings of alienation or loss or failure or despair that may overshadow our lives just now. And I've been very struck recently as I've spent increasing amounts of time with my ageing parents who are in their mid to late 80s and who are becoming increasingly frail. I was struck by the fact that they talk about extreme old age and the challenges of extreme old age as being a foreign land. It's a new territory they've never been to before. It's not one they anticipated or ever planned to be in. And it's not one for which there is a, an easy and ready map to guide them through. It is a sort of place of exile. It is a foreign land. And perhaps we can bear that in mind as increasing sections of our society grow older, as we will ourselves and ask God for the compassion and the strength to help people walk through that land in positive and fulfilling ways. I don't know what sort of foreign land or place of exile perhaps you might be feeling that you're experiencing just now. Maybe it's associated with your health or your age or your working life or your prospects, or perhaps it's to do with your family situation, or your future security. There are so many sets of human life experiences and circumstances that can sometimes make us feel we are in exile, far from the place we long to be, or would choose to be, or feel we truly belong. But whatever the reasons underlying a sense of exile and alienation that we may be experiencing, I'd suggest that those are precisely the seasons when tragedy seems to overwhelm us and produce feelings of loss and alienation, failure and despair. Those are precisely the seasons when time and times when God invites us to turn to him with our own song or songs of lament. As a loving father, God invites us to bring our sense of alienation, of disappointment and regret into his presence and to lay it in his skillful hands so that he can work with it to restore us to himself and to help us regain our true identity and community as his beloved children. For the enduring message of the Old Testament is that even when human faithfulness fails, even when the covenant relationship with God is broken for whatever reason, God's faithfulness remains unfaltering and his presence with his people persists. So just because the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army does not mean that God is no longer present with his people in and through their time of displacement and exile. It's just that in the changing and challenging circumstances of their lives, God's people may need to learn to discern his presence with them in a new and radical way, even in a place of exile, even in a foreign land that is hostile to God's ways. 
And we know that happened because we have the book of Daniel as an example of someone who found a way of acknowledging God and being faithful to him, even in Babylon. I find it ironic but also reassuring that even though the exiles claimed they could not sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land, they nevertheless succeeded in composing a song about it. And had they not done so, we would not have Psalm 137 today. And perhaps it's also ironic but inspiring that so much of the Old Testament was actually written and edited during the period of exile in Babylon, as the Israelites had the time and the space to reflect on their own history, on what had happened, on that rise and fall pattern. And as they sought, more importantly, to discern the hand of God at work in all that they had experienced as a people chosen, commissioned by God. That 70 years of exile in Babylon was destined, through God's grace, to be a significant time of spiritual growth and learning for God's people, as they came to terms with their changed circumstances and found fresh purpose and meaning within it. It was not going to be wasted, certainly not by God. And living in exile does not necessarily mean living without purpose or without blessing. In the Old Testament, we read of a letter that was sent to the leaders of the exiles in Babylon with very clear instructions about how they should live, perhaps much more positive instructions than you might have expected, given that exile doesn't sound like a very promising place to live and to be blessed. This is what Jeremiah wrote in his letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Increase. Do not decrease. Grow. Do not be diminished by being in exile. So just as God sustained the children of Israel on their journey through the wilderness after slavery in Egypt, so he sustained his people in exile in Babylon through the encouraging messages that Jeremiah communicated. And in doing so, God prepared the ground for future restoration, which is always God's ultimate purpose for all that he has created. And... By the grace of God, there are many other individuals and communities down the centuries who can testify to God's redemptive and transforming work in their lives, even during times of exile following trial and tragedy. 
Inasmuch as our human minds and hearts can understand anything of God's nature, it seems that judgment and promise go hand in hand in the covenant relationship God has established with his people. As Jeremiah's letter later goes on to make clear, if we looked at a few verses later on, this is what we hear from Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So there will be a return to the promised land. There will be the restoration of Israel and Judah, as we shall hear next week in the last of the series when Nigel shares his reflections on Nehemiah and Ezra. But in the meantime, there is meaningful living to be done in the place of exile, even in that in-between place. And for those of us who currently find ourselves in a season of life which we might experience as a foreign land or a place of exile. Perhaps this truth will come as a form of reassurance and encouragement. God's words spoken through Jeremiah may inspire us to live hopefully and fruitfully in the in-between place where we currently find ourselves. We may not be able to step backwards to the safety and security of a settled past. And we may not yet know the way forwards to a better and more promising future. But we can be sure that God is present with us in the here and the now of this time and place. The name of power, remember, that God shared with Moses was not, I was. It was not, I will be. It was, I am. I am who I am, says the Lord. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. The reality of human existence means that there will undoubtedly be seasons of alienation and exile in our lives, periods when we face the challenge of living in a foreign land, a land we may not have chosen for ourselves. So we will need to find ways of being sustained and growing spiritually in that place of exile. And God, in his graciousness and faithfulness, stands ready and waiting to help us if we will only ask. Someone who asked and testifies to the faithfulness of God in our own time is celebrating her 90th birthday this weekend. And I find myself ever more inspired by the example of Queen Elizabeth's Christian faith throughout the changing seasons of her 90-year 
lifespan. 20 years longer than the exile in Babylon. It's a lifespan that coincides with my own lifespan. Well, I'm not 90, but... <laughs> although sometimes I feel it. But the reality is I've never known another queen or monarch. She has always been there for me. And if you haven't read it, I would recommend that you have a look at this book. The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. It's produced by the Bible Society, Hope, and the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And it seeks to articulate the importance of the Christian faith that underpins the life of Queen Elizabeth. In the foreword to the book, the Queen testifies to God's steadfast love and faithfulness throughout her own life. And she also recalls some words from a poem that her father, King George VI, used in his 1939 Christmas message at a time when Britain faced the tragedy and darkness of world war for the second time within a generation. To my mind, they are not dissimilar to words that any prophet of God might have spoken to any of God's people as they were taken off into a place of darkness and exile. I want to read them because I think they're words that bring spiritual challenge and reassurance in any generation, including our own. And for those of us who find ourselves in a place of exile or about to be carried off into a foreign land, I hope that they will be a positive encouragement. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, 